I wonder how you would um, weigh in on a low level disagreement that Krista and I sometimes have. Like every family, one of the things we love to do with our kids in the evening is just kind of flake out in front of the TV, stream a show, an episode or two, and just kind of spend that time together. And, and one of the shows that we have sometimes streamed with our kids uh, is The Cosby Show. It's a show that uh, Krista and I both grew up watching, a show that we both loved when we were little. And now watching it as an adult and as a parent, you realize the genius in some ways of the show, the way they never shied away from hard issues and, and uh, it raised difficult conversations and actually creates a space as a family where you can talk about things that maybe are more difficult to talk about. And so there's, there's lots, and it's just funny, like there's lots that we have loved and do love about watching The Cosby Show. And yet at the same time, there is something that makes me uncomfortable in showing the Cosby show to my kids that Krista doesn't feel, and it is 100% the presence of Bill Cosby. With everything that we've learned about the kind of person that Bill Cosby has been and the kind of person that he is in the last few years, there's something deep in my gut that is profoundly unsettled and incredibly uncomfortable with the idea that Bill Cosby would become a beloved figure and even a voice of influence in my family's life. There's a part of me that wants just everything about Bill Cosby to go away and to never come back. Online, people refer to that kind of instinct as cancel culture. The idea is that like a, a television show, when it gets canceled, it just kind of disappears. It vanishes off the radar. Something else takes its place. And you never really have to hear from that show or encounter it ever again. And, and so online, there has become this cancel culture where, you know, when a public figure does or says something that um, demonstrates an ugly side to their character, people will immediately rush primarily to Twitter and they'll say, cancel Bill Cosby. I want Bill Cosby, if this is the kind of person he is, I want Bill Cosby to disappear and I never want to hear from Bill Cosby again, right? Cancel Kevin Spacey, cancel Harvey Weinstein. Let's just, it's admittedly a mob mentality, uh, this um, incredible swelling of, of outrage and it just wants... It just wants that person to disappear and to never come back. The interesting thing that I was thinking about in preparation for this morning is, the, is that how I, that instinct, that part of my gut that I feel about Bill Cosby is precisely how an enormous number of people feel about the church. There is an incredible, well, according to the survey that Jeff talked to us last week about, 85% of people 40 and under would just like to cancel the church because the church is filled with hypocrisy. Now, that's not news to any of us. Just, just watch the news. It's probably not a week that goes by where there isn't a story about the church in the news and they're, they're never good, right? Whether it's, you know, a sex scandal, there, there was news this week 
about a guy in Welland who has been protesting outside of St. Kevin's Catholic Church for the last year because he wants the Catholic Church to take responsibility for the abuse that he and others suffered when they were little. But lest we think this is a Catholic issue, in February of this year, the Houston Chronicle published a report that said there are 380 leaders in the Southern Baptist convention who have been accused of accused of sexual assault by more than 700 victims who were interviewed um, the atlantic magazine published an article recently because it's not just sex scandals this article that they published recently said that young evangelicals are leaving the church in droves because of the church's eager participation in the ugliest and meanest forms of politics especially conservative politics. The article was entitled The Immoral Majority. It was kind of a play on, on words from the political group in the 80s called the Moral Majority, who were evangelicals who wanted to bring some morality to politics. Now they said evangelicals in the political realm have become the immoral majority, who have um, traded integrity for power. There's a whole hashtag online called empty the pews and an entire community that identify as ex-evangelicals because they just don't want to be a part of that part of the church anymore um it's not just those there's the church's history of involvement in colonialism and slavery the church's ongoing especially the evangelical church's ongoing struggle with white supremacy which at some level was baked into the very origins of the movement, there's sexism in the church, like just you name it, people look at it. There was a, a, the late British reporter named Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great. And it just says, it, the subtitle, how religion poisons everything. People just look at the stories about the church. They say, let's just cancel the church. Want nothing to do with it. And not just because at an institutional level, the church behaves badly. At a personal level, people's experience of Christians are that Christians behave without integrity. Um, in that survey, 81% of the people under 40 from outside the church, they were asked, do you have ongoing relationship with Christian people? 81% said, yes, I am in friendships with Christian people. And then they were asked, how different do your Differently, do your Christian friends behave than your non-Christian friends? 15% of people said they could see a difference. Not 50, which would be bad enough. 15% said, yes, my Christian friends live in a way that is different than my non-Christian friends. Statistically, Christians are every bit as likely to participate in problematic gambling uh, in viewing pornography, in theft and deception and abuse of all kinds, including substance abuse, revenge, gossip, you name it. The numbers say that there is virtually no difference between people inside the church and people outside the church in terms of their integrity. No wonder when you read the, the stories about Jesus' life, the most protracted tirade the longest rant that Jesus ever goes off on is an entire chapter in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus just loses his mind on religious on self-righteous religious people calling them hypocrites the word uh, in Greek it's a Greek word hypocrite 
And it means someone who wears a mask. In other words, an actor. Someone who is presenting one face to the world, but that face does not represent the reality. Someone who is literally putting on a show. And Jesus' longest tirade in all of the Gospels is against self-righteous religious people who are putting on a big show of faith when the reality behind the mask is utter hypocrisy. The, The problem that the church faces. And the reason people want to cancel the church is because there is, when it comes to integrity, there's apparently no difference between Christians and other people. Even at the level of core motivation, I I read a study uh, this past week and the study with the psychologists did, they got, they gave participants a long list of tasks that needed to be assigned either to themselves or to another person that they didn't know. Now, the thing about the list was there was two kinds of tasks on the list. There were really awesome, exciting tasks that actually came with a reward if you finished them. And then there was very mundane and boring tasks that had no reward if you were to accomplish them. In other words, some were really good and cool tasks and others were terrible. And they had to assign the tasks between themselves and somebody else. And the, the instructions were, obviously, the temptation is to assign all the good tasks to yourself and all the terrible tasks to the other person. So let's do this fairly. The most fair way to assign the task would be to flip a coin. And they were given a coin. And one side said self, and the other side said other person. And everybody agreed the fairest way to assign the task was to flip the coin. Then there's a 50-50 shot every time. And as soon as the door of the experiment room closed, half the people didn't flip the coin a single time. They just gave all the great tasks to themselves and all the terrible tasks to somebody else. But the other half actually went through the process of flipping the coin every time. And then they assigned 85 or 90% of the great tasks to themselves. And they assigned all the terrible tasks to the other person. And And the interviewers asked them afterwards, they said, we saw you flipping the coin but you were completely ignoring the results of the coin toss. You were still giving yourself all the great tasks. Why were you doing that? And they said, well, I wanted to be fair about it, but every time I flipped the coin, I didn't like the outcome. So I just did what I wanted instead. But at the, at the, at the base, base, base level, what drives people more than anything else is self-interest. As much as people want to do the right thing, they want to get their own way even more. And the thing about that core motivation, which is shared among all humanity, is that it is fundamentally the opposite of what Jesus is like. In in Mark chapter uh, 10, verse 45, Jesus says this. He says, for even the son of man, even Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, listen, the core purpose for which I came was not to be catered to, was not to get my way, does not to have everything go the way I wanted it to. The reason I am here or my core motivation in every choice that I make is not to have everything serve me, but to serve everyone else and actually give whatever I need to give of myself to make sure that other people are getting what's best for them, that other people are experiencing and encountering the love of God. Jesus says, everything I am about is what would be best for everybody else and we're just not like that there's the old joke about the mom 
who always asked her son, you know, what would Jesus do? She'd be like, Jimmy, you didn't make your bed. You know, would Jesus not make his bed? Jimmy, you hit your sister. Would Jesus hit his sister? Jimmy, where's the money that was on the counter? Did you take it? Would Jesus take money that didn't belong to him? And finally, her son um, got totally fed up with it. He said, look, mom, I don't know what Jesus would do. And it doesn't matter because I'm not Jesus. And that's actually the heart of the matter. The only person who's ever been able to live with integrity who's ever been able to live the kind of life that radiates the life and love of God in the world is Jesus. And all of the rest of us are failing at that badly. Which is kind of the point of saying, I'm going to follow Jesus, is say, I recognize I'm I'm doing this badly and I want to become more like Jesus in my life. The problem is, and that's why we come to environments like this, the problem is all of the things that we think are going to create greater integrity in our life with Jesus that we can radiate the life and love of Jesus into the world. All of those things don't work, right? Like instinctively, I'll give you an example. Instinctively, we think that moments like this one, where somebody is opening up the Bible and explaining the truth of what it says in here, that listening to a good sermon, not saying this one's any good, but listening to good sermons at the very least would change your life. That it's a knowledge problem, right? That what we need are more sermons and more Bible studies and more podcasts and more blog posts and uh, more self-help programs. And we just need more books. We need, we need more exposure to the truth about what the Bible teaches so we can become more like Jesus. And we get that impulse from our culture, right? Our culture, whatever the problems are in the world, our culture's answer is always the same. We need more education. That if we change the way people think, we will change the way we live. The, the, the problem is that that's fundamentally untrue. This sermon will not change your life. And not just because it's probably no good. Sermons don't change people's lives. And I say that as somebody who gets paid money to do this. To study the Bible and to communicate it. Sermons don't change lives. And, and I'll tell you why. They're tremendously important. And I'll talk about that. But... I'll tell you why. We'll do a little thought experiment. Um, How many people, and I want you to put up your hand. I can't see you, obviously, where you are, but you can see each other. So you can get a feel for what's going on in the room. I want you to put up your hand if you've ever made a terrible decision and then look back on it later and say, oh, I know better than that. Put up your hand if you've ever had to look at a decision you made and say, I know better than that. See, now every hand in every room should be in the air. And if your hand is not in the air right now, either you're a tremendous introvert, you're new to the community, or you are adding to the hypocrisy of the church and pretending to be something that you're not. Because we've all done that. We know often the right thing to do, and we still don't do it. Right? People knew flipping a coin is the fairest way to get this done, and they still didn't do it. Knowledge doesn't change behavior. The same thing is true with inspiration or motivation. We think often, I just need to be passionate. I just need to be inspired to make better decisions. And so we come into an environment like this and it's less about the sermon. It's more about the the worship music, the inspiration, the the motivation of just letting the words and the music wash over you. And if I'll just get all fired up and it'll inspire me to live differently that week. And and it doesn't work, right? Right? Because Monday morning is still Monday morning, regardless of whether you went to church on Sunday. 
It still feels the same. The feelings are gone. How many of you have ever, we could do the same experiment. How many of you have ever, in a fit of enthusiasm and motivation, signed up for a course, uh, quit your job, uh, bought a puppy, um, started to work out, set New Year's resolutions. You just got all excited and motivated and you decided you were going to do this thing only to flame out later, right? Like all of us. Why? Because eventually the feeling fades and now we're not feeling it anymore and everything just kind of falls apart. We don't get changed by what we know and we don't grow in integrity by getting all inspired by getting all the feels from a worship service. The only thing, there's only one thing that's going to change us. And it's the life of God flowing in us and then out of us. Period. This is what it says in Philippians chapter 2. And it starts in verse 12. It says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, Right, this is a passage about obeying. This is a passage about living in line with God's will for your life, radiating the life and love of Jesus into the world so people look at you and people look at all of us and say, man, that reminds me of Jesus. That's what I think Jesus would be like. That's what this is about. It's about integrity. He says, therefore, as you've always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul says, how is it that we live with integrity? How is it that we live lives of obedience? We all, it only happens when God is allowed to work in us to change what we want so that we will choose to do something, to do behaviors that put a smile on God's face. That it is the God's work in us. In fact, there's a word play. If you read this passage in the Greek language in which it was originally written, there's a word play in the passage that you can't quite see in English. The phrase work out your salvation. God works in you in order to act, those three words all translate the same Greek word, and it's a word that gives us the English word for energy. And the word means something like to energetically engage in accomplishing a task. That's what the word means. It's to pour your energy into accomplishing a task or reaching a goal. And so here, if I were to paraphrase the passage so that you can hear the word play, this is what Paul says. He says, I want you to keep Pouring out your energy to actualize your salvation, to make it real. Because it is God who is actively energizing your spirit so that you will choose to energetically act in a way that puts a smile on God's face. Right? God is the one who is energizing your spirit so that you can energetic, choose to energetically act in a way that makes God happy. That's the, the, Paul is clear. The only way we're going to live lives of integrity is not if we sit and listen to a sermon or not if we get all fired up by music, but in as much as God is allowed to actively energize our spirit to change the way that we live. That's how things change. In another part of the New Testament, it's, Paul says, um, Christ 
in you is the hope of glory. Jesus Christ living in you by the power of the Holy Spirit because you put your faith in Jesus. That is your only hope that you would um, express and radiate the glory of God in your life. And what is the glory of God? Second century theologian Irenaeus says the glory of God is a human being fully alive with the life of Jesus. Your only hope of becoming a person who is fully alive, filled with the life of Jesus, is, is the life of Jesus that is living in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the only way that you're going to change. And so the question becomes, how do we let God do that? How do, we, how do we open ourselves up to God's actively energizing our spirits so that we can live with integrity instead of hypocrisy and live differently, live in a way that reminds people of Jesus? Paul tells us in the verse, he says, continue to work out your salvation. You continually pour your energy into actualizing your salvation, making it real in your life. It is not, we don't get changed by showing up to church and hearing a sermon. People will sometimes complain to me, I didn't get anything out of the sermon. You know what? The sermon doesn't exist for you to get something out of it. The sermon is offered to you in order that you would pour all of your energy into making the truth of the sermon real for you. If you don't get anything out of the sermon, it's because you put precisely nothing into the sermon. You put nothing into the hearing of the sermon. You weren't pouring out your energy trying to grasp the truth that comes from the scriptures and make it real for you in your life. The same is true of the worship music. People will say, you know, I showed up. I was so excited for worship this morning. I didn't like any of the songs. That's irrelevant. The question is not whether you loved the songs and therefore felt all the feels. The question is, how much energy did you pour into making the truth of the prayers of those songs your prayer to God? With your heart and your heart and your head and your hands and your feet and your body and body and soul. How much energy did you pour into embodying the prayer of that song with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Praying the song back to God by participating with the entire community. Because the whatever you put into it, that's what you'll get out of it. Paul says, if you want to open up a space where God is actively energizing your spirit to change the way you live, it's going to depend on you partnering with God by pouring all of your energy into making your faith real to you. That's why, honestly, the word energy I love, the most common metaphor that we use these days to talk about Sunday mornings is the metaphor of a spiritual gymnasium. Paul says you have to work out your salvation. We gather together on Sunday mornings to work out, to work, to sweat, to spiritually engage and to do the work of pouring ourselves energetically into the reality that God's presence is among us so that God can be actively energizing our spirit so that we can go and live differently. In fact, that's why more recently we've started to include in every service spiritual exercises. You know, the things that have paper and pencils on your chair, right? 
or that have uh, you engage in some way in quiet reflection or in talking to your neighbor or in standing in us all praying a prayer corporately together or doing some activity in the room. We do these things because they are opportunities for us to pour our energy into making the presence of God real to us in that moment so that God can actively energize our spirit and we can go and live differently. That's what that's for. And I know that some of them can be weird and some of them can be uncomfortable and stretching and that extroverts hate a moment of silence and introverts hate talking to their neighbor. Like we know all of that and invite you to participate anyway because it opens up a space for you to encounter the, act, the energizing activity of God that really will change your life. We had somebody come to one of our leaders after a service and they said, you know, I walked into the auditorium this morning, I saw the papers and pencils and I thought, nope, not today. Not today. I'm not participating. I don't know what they want me to do. I just know I'm not going to do it. I am not in the mood. I'm not in the headspace. I will use the paper and pencil to make a grocery list for this week and that is it. I'm ignoring it. And then they said to this leader, but then you stood up and you said, listen, I know that some of you don't want to do this today. Do it anyway. And give God a chance to meet with you. And I felt guilty. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll do it. And I bawled my eyes out the entire time. Because I met God in just this profound and deep way. And now I'm going to have to spend this week journaling about this experience that I had in service. And, and digging into the ways that God wants to change me through it. So thank you. And honestly, friends, I'm not saying that every time you choose to engage, you're going to bawl your eyes out. You're going to have this profound encounter with God, that there's going to be an audible voice from heaven. Like, obviously, that isn't true. But what is true at a bare minimum is that you will only ever get out of an experience what you have put into it. And if you're not willing to work out your salvation, if you're not willing to do the workout, if you're not willing to pour your energy into making your faith real, then God is not going to be able to be that energizing activity in your spirit that's going to transform the way that you live. That's just true and real. And not just here on Sunday mornings, right? I mean, this is one environment where we work out our salvation, but this isn't enough. This isn't going to change your life, just showing up once a week. If you've ever signed up for a a fitness class or spinning class, a yoga class, whatever the case may be. If you, you know the value of showing up and having a guide, an instructor, somebody who understands, who has the truth about how your body works and how fitness works, how health works and, and who can be your motivation and your cheerleader and inspire you to press on. You understand the value of being surrounded with people who are engaging with you and how all of that presses you to, to push harder and to spend more energy and to work out harder and, and to do more, to put more into it. But you also know that if that's all you ever do is go to that one class a week, you will never be fit. Because you can't get fit on one workout a week. The whole point of the fitness class or the workout program is that you would, you know, um, do it multiple times a week or do take what you learned there and just develop in yourself a habit, a discipline, a regimen of working out three, four, five times a week. And do you know what happens when you start to commit to working out three, four, five times a week is that suddenly you start to look at your life differently. 
Suddenly now you're like, I don't think I'm going to have that donut. I think I'll reach for an apple instead. Maybe I'll bike to work today instead of driving to work. Maybe I will go for a walk around the block instead of sitting at my desk. Like you, you start to look at your whole life differently because you've created this ongoing space for health. And the same thing is true spiritually. That we gather together in an environment like this to be in a class. It's like a workout class. We all work out together. We get the information we need and the inspiration we need. And we all work out together in the community. And, but the point is that you would leave this place and develop a habit three, four, five times a week of working out your salvation in these ways on your own. That's why Uh, Nearly every one of our spiritual exercises is designed in such a way that you can do them over and over and over again during the week. You can do them with your life group when you get together. You can debrief it with your life group. You can do it together with your family or your roommates. You can spend that week making this practice a habit. And if we do that over and over again, it genuinely will. If we pour energy into making our faith real, we will discover the energizing activity of God in our spirit, transforming our lives so that we can choose to behave in a way that looks more like Jesus. We can live with integrity instead of hypocrisy. And I talked with somebody this week who's been on that journey. Who told me that about three years ago, they decided that they were just, they were fed up with not, with being flabby in their faith, with not pouring energy into their faith. They just decided that every morning they were going to get up and just set aside 15 minutes to read an online devotional, to, to, to read the scriptures, to read an online devotional that would get emailed to them every single day and to just carve out a little bit of space in their life to pour some energy into working out their faith to make it real for them And they said over the years, they've discovered that as a result, God has been energizing, has been the energizing activity in their spirit. And they really do feel like they go through life differently now. And I asked them how, and he said, not in any sort of specific way. I read this verse. And so I applied that verse all day long. He said, in a general way, these 15 minutes kind of become like a, like the recalibrating of my compass needle. It reminds me which direction is north. It helps me in the way I view all my life. It changes how I think about my coworkers, many of whom aren't believers. It changes how I think about the tasks that I have in front of me. It changes the disposition of my spirit. I just find myself oriented to go through life in a more Jesus-y kind of way. And I can tell you, he did not say this. I can tell you that in my circles, this is somebody that I would point to and say, Folks, you should follow him in the way that he follows Christ. This is a person who radiates the life and love of Jesus into the world. He said to me, I think my life is changing. I said, do you want me to ask your wife about that? He said, no, you can just take me at my word. No, but this is a guy whose life looks like Jesus, someone who lives with integrity. And why? Because they, because he works out his salvation, because he creates the space to pour the energy into making his faith real. And he discovers in the process that he encounters a God that is actively energizing his spirit so that he chooses, he more often than not chooses to energetically act in a way that puts a smile on God's face because it looks like Jesus. And that, my friends, is the point. That's what we're for. And so the question for you is how well your workout program is going. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that when we put our faith in Jesus, you live in us by your Holy Spirit. That you want to energetically activate our spirits to look more like Jesus. Thank you that Jesus, who's the only person who knows how to live like Jesus, is willing to allow his life to spill out of our lives. Thank you that becoming people who remind others of Jesus is something that you do in us. And would you do that in us? And would you teach us the discipline of creating the space, of pouring the energy into encountering you so that that can be made real? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.